0: Well, I was going to ask who prayed for a white Christmas, but since Michael fessed up to it, I know who to blame for the slippery roads this morning. A few years ago, we were doing, uh, when I was on staff at Youth Haven Ranch down in uh, Rives Junction, um, we were singing Silent Night and had some children with me. Uh, Most of the kids coming to Youth Haven are from very underprivileged situations, and uh, they're not exposed to church very often, so we're singing Silent Night and... One of the little kids next to me pokes me and says, who's, who's round young virgin? <laughs> you know, I don't know what that phrase means. I didn't know how to answer him. Anybody know? Round young virgin? Round young? Oh, over there? I'm not sure. Okay. I was telling the earlier service, the... Um, Similar conversation with a child at Youth Haven, Um, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And if you've not been in church, uh, you know, some of those phrases or terms are very unfamiliar. So a child said to us, um, why did they name Jesus Christ a swear word? Kid you not. Think about the frame of reference. It's the only way they've ever heard the name used. So why did they name Jesus a swear word? says a whole lot about where our society is at. We talked last week about uh, the concept of surrender. We looked at it through the eyes of Joseph and Mary, but primarily Joseph, what he had to surrender to protect that child. He'd been entrusted with that responsibility as a dad, and, and dad's our role to protect the family. And so Joseph had this role and very specific directives from God about what he was to do to protect the family, and so he had to surrender. Um, interestingly, the definition that comes from Webster's Dictionary for surrender is very close to the biblical definition. Look with me up on the screen. This is from uh, the Webster's Dictionary. It's a verb, to yield to the power, control, or possession of another. We find in our walk with Christ, those who name the name of Jesus Christ, they follow after God, find themselves in a situation in which we constantly have to surrender. It begins at the very beginning when we surrender ourselves and say, okay, I'm not in control of everything, God, you are. I surrender. I recognize Jesus is responsible for purchasing me, for buying me back, for dying for my sins. So I surrender, I give. That's in the very beginning stages. I find that as my life goes along, because I have so much more goods than what I had when I was younger, it's much more difficult to surrender later in life than it is earlier in life. Would you not agree? Absolutely the truth. As a matter of fact, younger people, the 22-year-old version of Mark, found it much easier to surrender than what I do today. But constantly God's pressing on our hearts, causing us to surrender. A good example of that would be three young men back in ancient, ancient days, um, written about in the book of Daniel, who lived in a kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, and they lived under the rule of a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, these three young men, if you've been raised in church, you're very familiar with them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Persian names. Those are not their Jewish names. They were renamed when they were brought into Babylon. And because they were in Babylon, they were slaves working under King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that setting, they were told, you've got to worship the king. You've got to worship King Nebuchadnezzar. He built this 90 foot high statue to himself and said, Every time the the bells ring or the horns are sounded, you've got to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. Those three young guys, because they were sold out to God, they had surrendered to God, said, No way, we're not doing it. And the king said, At the price of your life, you will surrender, or we will build a furnace so big that you will not be able to survive, but we'll throw you in the furnace. And so indeed, they did not surrender and the king had them thrown in the furnace. He heated it up so high that his guards couldn't even approach it without fainting and some of them died because they got so close. He threw them in the furnace and God protected them. Very interestingly, King Nebuchadnezzar had a specific response to what he saw when those young men yielded up their life. Look with me up on the screen at Daniel chapter three. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's response. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Now catch that. A non-believer watching believers in God, willingly surrendering, and saying, wow, this is amazing, because now he begins to exalt the God of creation. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Because they surrendered. They yielded up. We find two different forms of surrender. There's submissive surrender, in which we willingly, God presses on our heart, and we willingly just say, okay, I understand, I give, I get it. Then there's another form of surrender, in which I would consider more of an intellectual surrender, Um, it's, It's a result of surrendering to overwhelming evidence, things that you just can't deny to be the truth. And so you say, okay, I get it. I totally surrender to that. But it requires a crisis of belief at some point. You cross a line in which you say, either because God's pressing on your heart or because the evidence is so powerful, you come to a crisis of belief to say, What I believe about God must really be this, and so I surrender to it. I'm going to take that step. You arrive at a crossroad. What does this have to do with Christmas? This morning we're going to look specifically at three more individuals, we believe, probably a greater number than that, but three more individuals who surrendered to God, putting aside worldly treasures, everything that they had accumulated, they set aside for a time to go and worship Christ. They're yielding to the authority of God. Before we do that, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. God not only would apply this to our hearts, uh, but also some of you may know uh, Steve and Bonnie Opera. Bonnie, um, you may have known. Um, they go to another church, Graham Community Church, but all kingdom. And uh, Bonnie passed away yesterday with cancer. It had been a long fight, long battle. And, and Steve, a, a friend and his children are struggling, obviously, and working through finding, you know, the peace of God, and, and Scott uh, Wheeland, a good friend of theirs, tells me that there's a, a sense of peace with them, but still, the loss of mom and the loss of wife two weeks before Christmas, is an incredible blow. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me about that situation and about God applying this to our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you as individuals gathered um, to learn more about your nature and character, the way that you act throughout history, to understand um, about how to apply these things to our lives, Uh, but uh, much better for having been part of studies like this to be able to gain insights into how you move. We just ask, Father, that you would uh, allow your spirit the freedom to move among us this morning, that there would be application, that we would understand the truths that you personally, each individual here, needs to take to their own life. So, Father, we ask for that sense of the Spirit moving among us. God, we, with heavy hearts, lift up to you Steve Opper and the children at the loss of Bonnie yesterday and ask that you would be very near to them, that you'd be their comforter and their source of strength that you'd give the peace that passes all understanding. This didn't catch you by surprise, and you certainly take situations like this and bring it for good. But many times, Father, we confess it's hard to see the good in situations like this. But we recognize that we live in a fallen world, and so we succumb to illnesses and sickness, but we look forward to the day, Father, when there will be no more death and no more crying. Father, we give this situation up to you, asking that you would be their source of strength. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Old Testament prophecies going way, way back in the ancient days before Jesus said that when a Messiah arrived, when he appeared on the scene, there would be some strong indicators. One of the strongest indicators would be that kings would come and bow down before him. The prophecy was given for the benefit of the people of Israel so that they would know when their Messiah had arrived because kings would come from distant lands. Those who were in control, leading, would come from a long ways away. As a matter of fact, look with me up on the screen at one of the prophecies from Isaiah. Isaiah 60. And understand, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Jumping down to verse six, they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Can't get much more specific than that, can you? They will bring gold and frankincense. Now nations is speaking of other countries, representatives from distant lands coming to worship this new one that's born. So this is going to be a remarkable circumstance. Not only that, but Scripture also said that there would be kings that would come and worship, not just nations, but leaders of nations. Scripture calls them in the Old Testament the hakem. We call them in the New Testament the magi. The hakem had a very specific definition by which qualified them to be considered the wise men, the ones who had been elevated. Look with me at the definition on the screen for the word hakem. The word is wise, intelligent, skillful, artful, cunning, subtle, wise-hearted. So when you see that, you have to say to yourself, what in the world did it take to become the hakem? How does one get elevated to such a status? What was the makeup of these individuals? Look with me on the screen. This is from the book of Esther. And this is another king who is in control, King Xerxes, who had control over the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian area, and he also had the hakem in his empire. This is a definition that he used for the hakem. Esther chapter 1, verse 13, Then the king said to the wise men, the hakem, who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. So these are very important individuals. They're in the palace. They have access to the king. They understand science, mathematics, medicine, law. It says right there they understood law and justice. Philo, a first century historian, said that in the school of the Magi in the Babylonian Empire, what we might also call Persia, they were students of the systems of creation, of the natural order of the earth. So they understood astronomy as well. All that plays into this story. Join me in Matthew chapter 2 if you have your Bibles with you this morning. If not, you're going to find them in the pew racks there in front of you. Matthew chapter two, very familiar story, but there 's some insights that you can gain from the definitions going on here. Matthew chapter two and verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the King, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, last week, if you 're here, you understand the background of Herod a little bit, so i 'm going to catch you up if you weren 't here. Herod was installed in forty BC by uh, Caesar Augustus, Caesar of Rome. Put Herod in place as a ruler over this realm, known as Judea. 40 B.C., he installed him. 36 B.C., he gave him a title, the King of the Jews. Now, to solidify his position in power, he began wiping out his adversaries. Matter of fact, one entire family dynasty he destroyed. As time went on, he began killing people in order to hold his position of power. Included among them were his wife, and three of his sons and his mother-in-law. No comment. <laughs> I, I refrain. I, something just slipped out from me in the first service. and um, I have a great mother-in-law, by the way, okay? But he did. He killed his family members. Can you imagine? He killed his family members because he thought they were a threat to his throne. As a matter of fact, five days before he died... He has his will in place. He has the keepers of his will bring it to him on his deathbed and he rewrites his will. Why? Because he looks out in the courtyard and he sees his fourth son, Antipater, talking to someone in the courtyard. He surmises in his mind, they must be up to something. They're plotting against me. So he has Antipater executed three days before his death. He redefines his will, decides who he's going to give his kingdom to and it turns out to be Archelaus You heard about that last week. And so in this setting, we find the Hakem, these mighty rulers from Persia riding into Jerusalem with this violent king in control. So it says, Magi from the east. That's what the verse says. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Who were they? Who specifically were the Mahakem? Scripture uses very specifically in the Old Testament the language of Hebrew, And in the New Testament, the language of Greek, that's how it's written. Very rarely is there a foreign word thrown in, a word from another land. But in this case, the word magi is not Hebrew and it's not Greek. It's from another land. Look with me on the screen for the word magi. It's magos, of foreign origin, a magion, an oriental scientist, by implication, a wise man. Now, in Scripture, when you find it in the Old Testament, it uses a compound word. Rob is the first part of the compound. It's going to feel like a classroom for the next 30 seconds, so just endure this. Look with me on the screen at how this compound word is put together. Rob, Hebrew, an abundant in quantity, age, rank, quality, an elder, exceedingly great man, prince who is mighty. Now, that's the first part of the compound word. Take Rob, and mag, and put it together, rob mag is the word that's used in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it's a foreign word for a magian, a chief magian, a Babylonian official. So we have these individuals who have come for, from the area of Persia, what we would call today Iran and Iraq. They ride in from this region as rob mags, exceedingly great Powerful individuals with wonderful wealth. They're wise beyond their years. They understand medicine, science, law, and they begin asking questions. We see that they occur throughout history. Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and also in the Roman Empire. So these are a very ancient people. So you have to ask yourself, how did they know? How in the world did they know 800 miles away that this event was unfolding in Jerusalem and more specifically in Bethlehem? How in the world? And what caused them to think when they saw that star that that was his star? How in the world could they put those pieces together? Apparently, this is such a significant event that it caused very powerful rulers from 800 miles away to start out on a three-month journey just to get to the location. And so when they get to the location, they begin asking the questions. Now understand that King Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of the empire of Babylon, had elevated the Rab Mag, or what we call the Hakim, to a very high position of power. They were his advisors. They had the first seats next to the throne. And in their position they came into contact with one very particular Jewish man, a Jewish man who worshipped God. Now, you remember in the beginning of the message when I was talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had a friend, a fourth man, a young man. His name was Daniel. Daniel was put into a position in which he could influence the Magi. I'm going to show you how that unfolds. Remember now, if you know the story at all, Nebuchadnezzar has a horrible dream. He can't figure out the dream. It's kind of like Joseph with Pharaoh, only in this case it's Daniel and the king. And the king has a horrible dream. He can't figure out what's going on. And so he calls for his wise men to come in, the hakim They can't help him. And they point to Daniel, this young man of God, who has completely surrendered to God. And he says, if you can interpret my dream, I will give you things. Look with me on the screen that happened for Daniel. Daniel 2.48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel's been elevated because of his ability to serve God. He's now in a position to affect the Hakem fascinating that a man of God has been literally placed right in Babylon, serving the king. Now go with me to the next verse. You're gonna find in Daniel chapter five that King Nebuchadnezzar has died and his grandson is put in power. And he has a similar problem. He has a dream, a vision, he can't figure it out. So he invites Daniel in after his advisors tell him about Daniel, Daniel 5.11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father... Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians. More accurately, the Magian, or the Hakem. So we find Daniel elevated to this position, and we ask ourselves this question, how in the world could these guys know? 800 miles away, before cell phones, before email, how did they figure this out? They've got a man of God in their presence influencing them, telling them about ancient prophecies. Which prophecies? I'm going to give you just three. Look with me on the screen, first of all. This is the oracle of Balaam, Numbers 24, 16. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, although falling flat on the ground with his eyes open, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. A scepter meaning a king. Understand, this is written hundreds of years before, even before Daniel. So Daniel's sharing these passages with these individuals. Now, specifically, the word that's used here for star is the word or, and it means a planet, a luminary presence. Look with me at the definition. Or, illumination, luminary, bright, clear, the sun. So he says there will be a planetary movement. Look at the next prophecy. It comes from Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations will come to your light, the word Oregon meaning star, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So there's prophecy hundreds of years old saying that kings will come and approach this one. Look with me at the next one, Isaiah 49, 7. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So put the pieces together. 800 miles away, you've got this very ancient people group known as the Hakim or the Magi. And they're those who study the stars. They study law, science, creation, medicine. And they have all these passages. And they see the star and they've come to a point of a crisis of belief. Do we really believe about that which was handed down to us is really real? Think about that. They had to come to a point in which they decided to surrender the comforts of the palace, their families, everything that they knew, and journey for months across the desert. To get to this one where they saw a star. Now it says the star in the east. It literally means we're in the east looking to the west. We saw the star from the east is the accurate interpretation of that. So they're in the east looking to the west and they're asking these questions. Obviously this venture had major significance. This was a huge deal. Otherwise they would have not undertaken this kind of a journey. So, we understand that they arrive in Jerusalem. Let's pick it up there at verse 2, and it moves fairly quickly here at this point. Arrived, they arrived in Jerusalem, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Do you notice that they say born king? They didn't say the one named to become king. They said he's born king, meaning his, the, the status is his from birth. He's not going to become king. He's born king. And they use a very specific word when they call him king. The word is basilius. Look with me on the screen at the definition. It means the basis or a foundation of power. The term basilius when you're speaking of a king was only used of the mightiest of kings. Where is he who has been born basilius? Mighty foundation of power. We're looking for him. And why? Because we've come To worship him. To proskuneo. There's another definition for you to see on the screen. Proskuneo. Prostrate oneself in homage. Do reverence, to adore, to worship. These guys are eager to worship God even though they have limited knowledge of God. They understand that God is making a movement here. He's raising up a king and they want to worship him. So they're going to proskuneo. Literally, they're going to prostrate themselves down on the ground before this king. So verse three, when Herod, Herod the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He heard this, he's troubled because he's a politician. He has political control. He's in power. Rome is also scared of the Persian Empire. Iran and Iraq were a threat to the people of Israel at this time, just like today. So he understands there's a risk to my kingdom and these Persians are coming in. So he's troubled. Herod looks out his palace window. He sees the Iranians riding in, bringing probably a calvary with them. They didn't go alone. And when he heard that they arrived in Jerusalem, Scripture says he's agitated, meaning like your washing machine. The agitation cycle that works back and forth, his stomach is roiling within him. So he's upset, and it says all Jerusalem also. Why? Anytime you ask questions when you've got a madman in control, there's chances that somebody's going to get hurt. So they're understanding this is not good, that they're asking about a new king. Verse 4, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Why would a king who had absolutely no religious interest whatsoever, ask for the advice and counsel of religious leaders. He works for Rome. He has the knowledge of Rome. He has Caesar at his his call. He can ask for advice about what to do. Instead, he calls for religious leaders because Herod understood something that many people have forgotten today. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. And Herod understood that this prophecy of Micah was taken very seriously. You'll see it in just a second. That there was to be a king born who would potentially overthrow him. He didn't understand we're talking kingdom of heaven, not kingdom of earth. So let's move forward here. Verse 5. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Meaning, what stands written is uncontested. It cannot be challenged. What can't be challenged? Verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, and by no means, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel they're quoting an Old Testament prophet by the name of Micah. They're repeating it to Herod saying, there's one who's going to rise up. Now remember, Herod is a dedicated Roman following Caesar. He understands that even though he's not a God-man, when God says he's going to do something, it's going to happen. So he asked the religious leaders to explain how is this going to happen. Now the religious leaders did not use the entire prophecy. They only used a smidgen of it. Let me finish for you the actual prophecy. Look with me on the screen, Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth, this is the part they left out. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, we understand that Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had all the scriptures available to them. They understood the prophecies, yet we see no evidence of them racing off to Bethlehem to see if this one has actually been born. Wouldn't you do that? I mean, if your entire life was worshiping God, would you not read the prophecies, put two and two together? You hear the guys coming in on the camels with the Calvary of Persia and say, wow, I gotta go see this for myself. But there's no evidence here whatsoever that these guys ever bothered to leave Jerusalem. This prophecy that we just read was written nearly 800 years before the birth of Jesus. And the part that was left out, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, is a phrase that's always used of a military action of a coming king. When a king is about to step onto the battlefield and carry out his actions, they use the phrase, his goings forth, meaning his kingly activities. So they left this part out. I'm assuming it's because they were a little bit threatened by telling Herod any more bad news whatsoever, and they didn't want to be in his presence, but that's all they quoted to him. They left out that very important part. So let's move on, verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. We understand that Herod was scheming to kill the little boys of Bethlehem. We know the story. But do you notice that the Magi are so informed, they know the exact date? They know exactly when it appeared. Verse 8: And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Do you believe him? I'm just checking to see if you're following. I don't believe him either. That wasn't his goal. But they apparently believed him because Herod sent no escort with them. He sent them out on their own. Verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now remember, the day before they go into this meeting with Herod, they say, we're from the east, we're looking to the west, and we see the star, the Christ child, the star, the newborn king, where is he? They come out of the meeting with Herod, and the star is now in the south. What explains that? We don't know. I would encourage you this week sometime if you get a chance, and I have it on DVD, you get a chance to borrow it from me if you want to. It's called The Star of Bethlehem. Uh, A couple physicists and and a scientist from NASA got together and put together this research on the Star of Bethlehem, what it could have been. It's a very fascinating study. But how remarkable that they come out of this meeting with Herod and it's no longer in the west. It's now in the south because Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Why in the world did God choose to show the birth of his son through the stars? We get all freaked out in Christendom about talking about the stars, telling things, because astrology, and it's it's not an area that we want to mess with. We don't predict the future through stars. But we understand that God uses the stars. Why did he use the stars to reveal the birth of his son? Look with me on the screen at Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. What a better place to show the birth of the Creator. The one who spoke the world into existence, being born, God uses the universe to speak about the arrival of his Son. Fascinating to me. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him proscuneo, literally prostrate on the ground. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I want you to notice a very important detail. It's it's not one that you would want to miss. Circle it in your Bible. They fell to the ground and worshiped him. They came in the door and they see Mary, the mother of Jesus. They see Jesus. They make visual contact with them. But who do they worship? They worship Jesus, the Christ child. Worship is for God and God alone. We don't worship man. We worship God. And so they fell and worshiped before him. Verse 12, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Which way they went? Completely unclear to us. We assume they went down to the end of the Dead Sea and hung a left and took off back towards Persia, heading back to Iran and Iraq. Just like with Joseph, as we learned last week, God took sovereign action to defend his children, to defend the Christ child. He warned Joseph, and now he warned the wise men. I've got to protect this. Why? Because Satan is out to destroy. Satan had an agenda. How far are you personally willing to go to surrender to the work of God? Think about these guys and the position of power that they had, the wealth, the opulence, the realm that they lived within, and they held nothing too precious for them. God brings people all the way from Persia to worship the arrival of the Christ child. They left the palace They left their family. They set out on this adventure. Do you think they had a crisis of belief? Absolutely. I think they came to a point wondering, can we really trust this information that's been given to us over the years, handing it down to us? There's a couple observations for you. I find it remarkable that Matthew wrote this because Matthew, he's the only one that writes the account of the Magi arriving. But understand that Matthew also wrote Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the the world, make disciples of all what? Nations, right? Matthew is writing a letter to Jews. He's a Jew writing to Jews saying, by the way, the first Christ worshipers, they're Iranian. They're they're from Iraq. They're from Persia. I'd love to show this to Ahmadinejad. You know who that? President of Iran. The very first worshipers of Jesus. Those who Nao, besides the shepherds who got the news, the first Gentiles who come are not Greeks. They're not Americans. They're not Romans. They're Iraqis. And they come from hundreds of miles away to worship this king. Did it cost them something? Absolutely. It cost them their safety, to be sure. You can say that it also cost them their personal comfort. That it costs them their finances? Yeah. Cost them something else we tend to not think about. It costs them their reputation. Can you imagine being in Persia, in Babylon, and telling your friends and neighbors what you're about to do? We've got these ancient prophecies from hundreds of years ago, and we see the star shining in the west. We're going on a journey. You're going to do what? Because of what? Because of that? You're going to leave? Every time God invites us to join him in his work, there's a risk. It costs something. God invites you to join him, and there's a cost. Whether it's finances, whether it's job, whether it's personal agenda, whether it's family, relationships, it always varies. Even though salvation is free, There's a cost to be in obedience to God. The ultimate example is what we're going to look at next week. When we look at Jesus leaving the throne of heaven, surrendering everything to come to earth, what we call the incarnation. That's where I'm going to leave it this week. In Philippians 2.5, look with me on the screen at what Jesus surrendered. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. So do we yield to the authority of God or to the authority of the Herods of this world? The Herods of this world are always going to be around, always pressing, saying, this is what you're going to do. And we come to the point of a crisis of belief, saying, I believe this to be of God. I'm not following the Herods of this world. I'm following what God has asked me to do. That's why I say he's invited you to join him in his work. So the little blank on the front of your bulletin where it says it's all about blank, to fill that in is the word surrender. It's all about surrendering yourself to the king. It puts us in a position of having to be proscuneo, to fall, to prostrate ourselves, and give everything over to him. I'll be praying for you about that this week. Think through that passage. Work through Philippians 2 if you get a chance between now and next Sunday. It is a fascinating study, especially as we approach Christmas. So would you pray with me? Father, there's a group of people who have set aside our time this morning. We've surrendered an hour and a half in our day to study your word and to sing songs. We ask, first of all, that you would look upon that with favor and that you would bless this time and that you would use it for the expansion of your kingdom. Father, you've strengthened us in your word. You've shown us prophecies, promises that have been fulfilled. And that encourages us. You've reminded us that you paid the ultimate price. You surrendered everything. And so, Father, for that, as your people, we willingly lay ourselves before you and ask that you would use us mightily. Allow us to be bold enough, Father, though, to refuse the things of this world, to yield to your authority and not to the authority of man. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.